Section 2 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain Volume 1 Chapter 2 Letters 1856 to 61 keokuk and the river end of piloting there comes a period now of nearly four years when samuel clemens was either a poor correspondent or his letters have not been preserved only two from this time have survived happily of intimate biographical importance young clemens had not remained in muscatine his brother had no inducements to offer, and he presently returned to St. Louis, where he worked as a compositor on the evening news until the following spring, rooming with a young man named Burrell, a journeyman chairmaker, with a taste for the English classics. Orion Clemens, meantime, on a trip to Keokuk, had casually married there, and a little later removed his office to that city. He did not move the paper. Perhaps it did not seem worth while and in Keokuk he confined himself to commercial printing. The Ben Franklin book and job office started with fair prospects. Henry Clemens and a boy named Dick Hingham were the assistants, and somewhat later, when Brother Sam came up from St. Louis on a visit, an offer of five dollars a week and board induced him to remain. Later, when it became increasingly difficult to pay the five dollars, Orion took his brother into partnership, which perhaps relieved the financial stress, though the office methods would seem to have left something to be desired. It is about at this point that the first of the two letters mentioned was written. The writer addressed it to his mother and sister, Jane Clemens, having by this time taken up her home with her daughter, Mrs. Moffat. To Mrs. Clemens and Mrs. Moffat in St. Louis, Keokuk, Iowa, June 10th, 1856 my dear mother and sister i have nothing to write everything is going on well the directory is coming on finely i have to work on it occasionally which i don't like a particle i don't like to work at too many things at once they take henry and dick away from me too before we commence the directory I could tell before breakfast just how much work could be done during the day, and manage accordingly. But now they throw all my plans into disorder by taking my hands away from their work. I have nothing to do with the book. If I did, I would have the two book hands do more work than they do, or else I would drop it. It is not a mere supposition that they do not work fast enough. I know it. For yesterday the two book hands were at work all day, Henry and Dick all the afternoon, on the advertisements, and they set up five pages and a half. And I set up two pages and a quarter of the same matter after supper, night before last, and I don't work fast on such things. They are either excessively slow-motioned or very lazy. I am not getting along well with the job work. I can't work blindly without system. 
I gave Dick a job yesterday which I calculated he would set in two hours, and I could work off in three, and therefore just finish it by supper time. But he was transferred to the directory, and the job promised this morning remains untouched. Through all the great pressure of job work lately, I never before failed in a promise of the kind. Your son, Sam. Excuse brevity this in my third letter tonight. Samuel Clemens was never celebrated for his patience. We may imagine that the disorder of the office tried his nerves. He seems on the whole, however, to have been rather happy in Keokuk. There were plenty of young people there, and he was a favorite among them. But he had grown dissatisfied, and when one day, some weeks later, there fell into his hands an account of the riches of the newly explored regions of the upper Amazon, he promptly decided to find his fortune at the headwaters of the great South American river. The second letter reports this momentous decision. It was written to Henry Clemens, who was temporarily absent, probably in Hannibal. To Henry Clemens, Keokuk, August 5th, 56. My dear brother, Ward and I held a long consultation Sunday morning, and the result was that we two have determined to start to Brazil, if possible, in six weeks from now, in order to look carefully into matters there, and report to Dr. Martin in time for him to follow on the first of March. We propose going via New York. Now, between you and I and the fence, you must say nothing about this to Orion, for he thinks that Ward is to go clear through alone and that I am to stop at New York or New Orleans until he reports. But that don't suit me. My confidence in human nature does not extend quite that far. I won't depend upon Ward's judgment, or anybody's else. I want to see with my own eyes and form my own opinion. But you know what Orion is. When he gets a notion into his head, and more especially if it is an erroneous one, the devil can't get it out again. So I know better than to combat his arguments long, but apparently yielded, inwardly determined to go clear through. Ma knows my determination, but even she counsels me to keep it from Orion. She says I can treat him as I did her when I started to St. Louis and went to New York. I can start to New York and go to South America. Although Orion talks grandly about furnishing me with fifty or a hundred dollars in six weeks, I could not depend upon him for ten dollars. So I have feelers out in several directions, and have already asked for a hundred dollars from one source. Keep it to yourself. I will lay on my oars for a while and see how the wind sets, when I may probably try to get more. Mrs. Creel is a great friend of mine and has some influence with Ma and Orion, though I reckon they would not acknowledge it. I'm going up there tomorrow to press her into my service. I shall take care that Ma and Orion are plentifully supplied with South American books. They have Herndon's report now. Ward and the doctor and myself will hold a grand consultation tonight at the office. We have agreed that no more shall be admitted into our company. I believe the guards went down to Quincy today to escort our first locomotive home. Right soon, 
Your brother, Sam. Readers familiar with the life of Mark Twain know that none of the would-be adventurers found their way to the Amazon. His two associates gave up the plan, probably for lack of means. Young Clemens himself found a fifty-dollar bill one bleak November day blowing along the streets of Keokuk, and after duly advertising his find without result, set out for the Amazon by way of Cincinnati and New Orleans. I advertised the find and left for the Amazon the same day, he once declared, a statement which we may take with a literary discount. He remained in Cincinnati that winter, 1856-57, to 57, working at his trade. No letters have been preserved from that time except two that were sent to a Keokuk Weekly, the Saturday Post, and as these were written for publication, and are rather a poor attempt at burlesque humor, their chief feature being a pretended illiteracy, they would seem to bear no relation to this collection. He roomed that winter with a rugged, self-educated Scotchman, a mechanic, but a man of books and philosophies, who left an impress on Mark Twain's mental life. In April he took up once more the journey toward South America, but presently forgot the Amazon altogether in the new career that opened to him. All through his boyhood and youth, Samuel Clemens had wanted to be a pilot. Now came the long-deferred opportunity. On the little Cincinnati steamer, the Paul Jones, there was a pilot named Horace Bixby. Young Clemens, idling in the pilot-house one morning, seized with the old ambition, and laid siege to Bixby to teach him the river. The terms finally agreed upon specified a fee to Bixby of five hundred dollars, one hundred down, the balance when the pupil had completed the course and was earning money. But all this has been told in full elsewhere and is only summarized here because the letters failed to complete the story. Bixby soon made some trips up the Missouri River, and in his absence turned his apprentice, or cub, over to other pilots, such being the river custom. Young Clemens, in love with the life, and a favorite with his superiors, had a happy time until he came under a pilot named Brown. Brown was illiterate and tyrannical, and from the beginning of their association, pilot and apprentice disliked each other cordially. It is at this point that the letters begin once more, the first having been written when young Clemens, now twenty-two years old, had been on the river nearly a year. Life with Brown, of course, was not all sorrow, and in this letter we find some of the fierce joy of adventure which in those days Samuel Clemens loved. To Orion Clemens and Wife in Keokuk, Iowa. St. Louis, March ninth, 1858. Dear brother and sister, I must take advantage of the opportunity, now presented, to write you, but I shall necessarily be dull, as I feel uncommonly stupid. We have had a hard trip this time. Left St. Louis three weeks ago on the Pennsylvania. The weather was very cold, and the ice running densely. We got fifteen miles below town, landed the boat, and then one pilot. Second mate and four deckhands took the sounding boat and shoved out in the ice to hunt the channel. They failed to find it, and the ice drifted them ashore. The pilot left the men with the boat and walked back to us, a mile and a half. 
then the other pilot and myself with a larger crew of men started out and met with the same fate we drifted ashore just below the other boat then the fun commenced we made fast a line twenty fathoms long to the bow of the yawl and put the men both crews to it like horses on the shore brown the pilot stood in the bow with an oar to keep her head out and i took the tiller we would start the men and all would go well till the yawl would bring up on a heavy cake of ice and then the men would drop like so many tin pans while brown assumed the horizontal in the bottom of the boat after an hour's hard work we got back with ice half an inch thick on the oars sent back and warped up the other yawl and then george the first mentioned pilot and myself took a double crew of fresh men and tried it again this time we found the channel in less than half an hour and landed on an island till the pennsylvania came along and took us off the next day was cold as steel i was out in the yawl twice and then we got through but the infernal steamboat came near running over us we went ten miles further landed and george and i cleared out again found the channel first trial but got caught in a gorge and drifted helplessly down the river the ocean spray came along and started into the ice after us but although she didn't succeed in her kind intention of taking us aboard her waves washed us out and that was all we wanted we landed on an island built a big fire and waited for the boat she started and ran aground it commenced raining and sleeting and a very interesting time we had on that barren sandbar for the next four hours when the boat got off and took us aboard the next day was terribly cold we sounded hat island warped up around the bar and sounded again but in order to understand our situation you will have to read dr kane it would have been impossible to get back to the boat but the maria denon was aground at the head of the island they hailed us we ran alongside and they hoisted us in and thawed us out we had then been out in the yawl from four o'clock in the morning till half past nine without being near a fire there was a thick coating of ice over men yawl ropes and everything else and we looked like rock candy statuary we got to st louis this morning after an absence of three weeks that boat generally makes the trip in two henry was doing little or nothing here and i sent him to our clerk to work his way for a trip by measuring wood piles counting coal boxes and other clerkly duties which he performed satisfactorily he may go down with us again for i expect he likes our bill of fare better than that of his boarding house i got your letter at memphis as i went down that is the best place to write me at the post office here is always out of my route somehow or other remember the direction s l c steamer pennsylvania care duval and algio wharf boat memphis i cannot correspond with a paper because when one is learning the river he is not allowed to do or think about anything else i am glad to see you in such high spirits about the land and i hope you will remain so if you never get richer i seldom venture to think about our landed wealth 
for hope deferred maketh the heart sick i did intend to answer your letter but i am too lazy and too sleepy now we have had a rough time during the last twenty-four hours working through the ice between cairo and st louis and i have had but little rest i got here too late to see the funeral of the ten victims by the burning of the pacific hotel in seventh street ma says there were ten hearses with the fire companies their engines in mourning firemen in uniform the various benevolent societies in uniform in mourning and a multitude of citizens and strangers forming altogether a procession of thirty thousand persons one steam fire engine was drawn by four white horses with crepe festoons on their heads well i am just about asleep your brother sam among other things we gather from this letter that orion clemens had faith in his brother as a newspaper correspondent though the two contributions from cincinnati already mentioned were not promising furthermore we get an intimation of orion's unfailing confidence in the future of the land that is to say the great tract of land in eastern tennessee which in an earlier day his father had bought as a heritage for his children it is the same tennessee land that had millions in it for colonel sellers the land that would become as orion clemens long afterward phrased it the worry of three generations the dr kane of this letter is of course dr elijah kent kane the american arctic explorer any book of exploration always appealed to mark twain and in those days kane was a favorite the paragraph concerning henry and his employment on the pennsylvania begins the story of a tragedy the story has been fully told elsewhere mark twain a biography by same author and need only be sketched briefly here henry a gentle faithful boy shared with his brother the enmity of the pilot brown some two months following the date of the foregoing letter on a down trip of the pennsylvania an unprovoked attack made by brown upon the boy brought his brother sam to the rescue brown received a good pummeling at the hands of the future humorist who though upheld by the captain decided to quit the pennsylvania at new orleans and to come up the river by another boat the brown episode has no special bearing on the main tragedy though now in retrospect it seems closely related to it samuel clemens coming up the river on the a t lacey two days behind the pennsylvania heard a voice shout as they approached the greenville mississippi landing the pennsylvania is blown up just below memphis at ship island one hundred and fifty lives lost it was a true report at six o'clock of a warm mid-june morning while loading wood sixty miles below memphis the pennsylvania's boilers had exploded with fearful results henry clemens was among the injured he was still alive when his brother reached memphis on the lacey but died a few days later Samuel Clemens had idolized the boy and regarded himself responsible for his death. The letter that follows shows that he was overwrought by the scenes about him and the strain of watching, yet the anguish of it is nonetheless real. To Mrs. Orion Clemens, Memphis, Tennessee, Friday, June 18, 1858. 
dear sister molly long before this reaches you my poor henry my darling my pride my glory my all will have finished his blameless career and the light of my life will have gone out in utter darkness oh god this is hard to bear hardened hopeless i lost 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 and ruined sinner as i am i even i have humbled myself to the ground and prayed as never man prayed before that the great god might let this cup pass from me that he would strike me to the earth but spare my brother that he would pour out the fullness of his just wrath upon my wicked head but have mercy 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 upon that unoffending boy the horrors of three days have swept over me they have blasted my youth and left me an old man before my time molly there are gray hairs in my head tonight for forty-eight hours i labored at the bedside of my poor burned and bruised but uncomplaining brother and then the star of my hope went out and left me in the gloom of despair men take me by the hand and congratulate me and call me lucky because i was not on the pennsylvania when she blew up may god forgive them for they know not what they say molly you do not understand why i was not on that boat i will tell you i left st louis on her but on the way down mr brown the pilot that was killed by the explosion poor fella quarrelled with henry without cause while i was steering henry started out of the pilot-house brown jumped up and collared him turned him halfway around and struck him in the face and him nearly six feet high struck my little brother i was wild from that moment i left the boat to steer herself and avenge the insult and the captain said i was right that he would discharge brown in new orleans if he could get another pilot and would do it in st louis anyhow of course both of us could not return to st louis on the same boat no pilot could be found and the captain sent me to the a t lacy with orders to her captain to bring me to st louis had another pilot been found paul brown would have been the lucky man i was on the pennsylvania five minutes before she left new orleans and i must tell you the truth molly three hundred human beings perished by that fearful disaster henry was asleep was blown up then fell back on the hot boilers and i suppose that rubbish fell on him for he is injured internally he got into the water and swam to shore and got into the flatboat with the other survivors henry had returned once to the pennsylvania to render assistance to the passengers later he had somehow made his way to the flatboat he had nothing on but his wet shirt and he lay there burning up with a southern sun and freezing in the wind till the kate frisbee came along his wounds were not dressed till he got to memphis fifteen hours after the explosion he was senseless and motionless for twelve hours after that but may god bless memphis the noblest city on the face of the earth 
she has done her duty by these poor afflicted creatures especially henry for he has had five ay ten fifteen twenty times the care and attention that any one else has had dr peyton the best physician in memphis he is exactly like the portraits of webster sat by him for thirty-six hours there are thirty-two scalded men in that room and you would know dr peyton better than i can describe him if you could follow him around and hear each man murmur as he passes may the god of heaven bless you doctor the ladies have done well too our second mate a handsome noble-hearted young fellow will die yesterday a beautiful girl of fifteen stooped timidly down by his side and handed him a pretty bouquet the poor suffering boy's eyes kindled his lips quivered out a gentle god bless you miss and he burst into tears he made them write her name on a card for him that he might not forget it pray for me molly and pray for my poor sinless brother your unfortunate brother samuel l clemens p s i got here two days after henry it is said that mark twain never really recovered from the tragedy of his brother's death that it was responsible for the serious pathetic look that the face of the world's greatest laugh-maker always wore in repose he went back to the river and in september of the same year after an apprenticeship of less than eighteen months received his license as a st louis and new orleans pilot and was accepted by his old chief bixby as full partner on an important boat in life on the mississippi mark twain makes the period of his study from two to two and a half years but this is merely an attempt to magnify his dullness he was in fact an apt pupil and a pilot of very high class Clemens was now suddenly lifted to a position of importance. The Mississippi River pilot of those days was a person of distinction, earning a salary then regarded as princely. Certainly $250 a month was large for a boy of 23. At once, of course, he became the head of the Clemens family. His brother Orion was ten years older, but he had not the gift of success. By common consent, the younger brother assumed permanently the position of family counselor and financier. We expect him to feel the importance of his new position, and he is too human to disappoint us. Incidentally, we notice an improvement in his English. He no longer writes, Between you and I. Fragment of a letter to Orion Clemens, written at St. Louis in 1859. I am not talking nonsense. Now I am in earnest. I want you to keep your troubles and your plans out of the reach of meddlers until the latter are consummated, so that in case you fail, no one will know it but yourself. Above all things, between you and me, never tell Ma any of your troubles. She never slept a wink the night your last letter came, and she looks distressed yet write only cheerful news to her you know that she will not be satisfied so long as she thinks anything is going on that she is ignorant of and she makes a little fuss about it when her suspicions are awakened but that makes no difference 
i know that it is better that she be kept in the dark concerning all things of an unpleasant nature she upbraids me occasionally for giving her only the bright side of my affairs but unfortunately for her she has to put up with it for i know that troubles that i curse a while and forget would disturb her slumbers for some time Parenthesis number two possibly because she is deprived of the soothing consolation of swearing tell her the good news and me the bad putting all things together i begin to think i am rather lucky than otherwise a notion which i was slow to take up the other night i was about to round to for a storm but concluded that i could find a smoother bank somewhere I landed five miles below. The storm came, passed away, and did not injure us. Coming up, day before yesterday, I looked at the spot I first chose, and half the trees on the bank were torn to shreds. We couldn't have lived five minutes in such a tornado. And I am also lucky in having a berth, while all the young pilots are idle. This is the luckiest circumstance that ever befell me not on account of the wages for that is a secondary consideration but from the fact that the city of memphis is the largest boat in the trade and the hardest to pilot and consequently i can get a reputation on her which is a thing i never could accomplish on a transient boat i can bank in the neighborhood of a hundred dollars a month on her and that will satisfy me for the present principally because the other youngsters are sucking their fingers bless me what a pleasure there is in revenge and what vast respect prosperity commands why six months ago i could enter the rooms and receive only a customary fraternal greeting but now they say why how are you old fellow when did you get in and the young pilots who used to tell me patronizingly that i could never learn the river cannot keep from showing a little of their chagrin at seeing me so far ahead of them permit me to blow my horn for i derive a living pleasure from these things and i must confess that when i go to pay my dues i rather like to let the blank rascals get a glimpse of a hundred dollar bill peeping out from amongst notes of smaller dimensions whose face i do not exhibit you will despise this egotism but I tell you there's a stern joy in it. Pilots did not remain long on one boat as a rule. Just why, it is not so easy to understand. Perhaps they liked the experience of change. Perhaps both captain and pilot liked the pursuit of the ideal. In the light-hearted letter that follows, written to a friend of the family, formerly of Hannibal, we get something of the uncertainty of the pilot's engagements. To Mrs. Elizabeth W. Smith, in Jackson, Cape Girardeau County, Missouri. St. Louis, October 31, probably 1859. Dear Aunt Betsy, Ma has not written you because she did not know when I would get started down the river again. You see, Aunt Betsy, I made but one trip on the packet after you left and then concluded to remain at home a while. I have just discovered this morning that I am to go to New Orleans on the Colonel Chambers. Fine light draft, 
swift-running passenger steamer all modern accommodations and improvements through with dispatch for freight or passage apply on board or two but i have forgotten the agent's name however it makes no difference and as i was saying or had intended to say aunt betsy probably if you are ready to come up you had better take the ben lewis the best boat in the packet line she will be at cape gerardo at noon on saturday day after tomorrow and will reach here at breakfast time sunday if mr hamilton is chief clerk very well i am slightly acquainted with him and if messrs carter gray and dean somebody i have forgotten his other name are in the pilot house very well again i am acquainted with them just tell mr gray aunt betsy that i wish him to place himself at your command all the family are well except myself i am in a bad way again disease love in its most malignant form hopes are entertained of my recovery however at the dinner-table excellent symptom i am still as terrible as an army with banners aunt betsy the wickedness of this world but i haven't time to moralize this morning good-bye sam clemens as we do not hear of this attack again the recovery was probably prompt his letters are not frequent enough for us to keep track of his boats but we know that he was associated with bixby from time to time and now and again with one of the bowen boys his old hannibal schoolmates he was reveling in the river life the ease and distinction and romance of it no other life would ever suit him as well he was at the age to enjoy just what it brought him at the airy golden overweening age of youth to orion clemens in keokuk iowa st louis march eighteen sixty my dear brother your last has just come to hand it reminds me strongly of tom hood's letters to his family which i have been reading lately but yours only remind me of his for although there is a striking likeness your humor is much finer than his and far better expressed tom hood's wit in his letters has a savor of labor about it which is very disagreeable your letter is good that portion of it wherein the old sow figures is the very best thing i have seen lately its quiet style resembles goldsmith's citizen of the world and don quixote which are my beau ideals of fine writing you have paid the preacher well that is good also what a man wants with religion in these breadless times surpasses my comprehension pamela and i have just returned from a visit to the most wonderfully beautiful painting which this city has ever seen church's heart of the andes which represents a lovely valley with its rich vegetation and all the bloom and glory of a tropical summer dotted with birds and flowers of all colors and shades of color and sunny slopes and shady corners and twilight groves and cool cascades all grandly set off with a majestic mountain in the background with its gleaming summit clothed in everlasting ice and snow 
I have seen it several times, but it is always a new picture, totally new. You seem to see nothing the second time which you saw the first. We took the opera glass and examined its beauties minutely, for the naked eye cannot discern the little wayside flowers and soft shadows and patches of sunshine and half-hidden bunches of grass and jets of water which form some of its most enchanting features. There's no slurring of perspective effect about it. The most distant, the minutest object in it has a marked and distinct personality, so that you may count the very leaves on the trees. When you first see the tame, ordinary-looking picture, your first impulse is to turn your back upon it and say, Humbug! But your third visit will find your brain gasping and straining with futile efforts to take all the wonder in and appreciate it in its fullness and understand how such a miracle could have been conceived and executed by human brain and human hands. You will never get tired of looking at the picture but your reflections, your efforts to grasp an intelligible something, you hardly know what, will grow so painful that you will have to go away from the thing in order to obtain relief. You may find relief, but you cannot banish the picture. It remains with you still. It is in my mind now, and the smallest feature could not be removed without my detecting it. So much for the heart of the Andes. Ma was delighted with her trip, but she was disgusted with the girls for allowing me to embrace and kiss them, and she was horrified at the shottish as performed by Miss Castle and myself. She was perfectly willing for me to dance until twelve o'clock at the imminent peril of my going to sleep on the after-watch, but then she would top off with a very inconsistent sermon on dancing in general ending with a terrific broadside aimed at that heresy of heresies, the shottish. I took Ma and the girls in a carriage round that portion of New Orleans where the finest gardens and residences are to be seen, and although it was a blazing hot dusty day, they seemed hugely delighted. To use an expression which is commonly ignored in polite society, they were hell-bent on stealing some of the luscious-looking oranges from branches which overhung the fences, but I restrained them. They were not aware before that shrubbery could be made to take any queer shape which a skillful gardener might choose to twist it into, so they found not only beauty, but novelty in their visit. We went out to Lake Pontchartrain in the cars. Your brother, Sam Clemens we have not before heard of Miss Castle, who appears to have been one of the girls who accompanied Jane Clemens on the trip which her son gave her to New Orleans, but we may guess that the other was his cousin and good comrade Ella Creel. One wishes that he might have left us a more extended account of that long-ago river journey, a fuller glimpse of a golden age that has vanished as completely as the days of Washington. We may smile at the natural, youthful desire to air his reading, and his art appreciation, and we may find his opinions not without interest. We may even commend them, in part. Perhaps we no longer count the leaves on Church's trees, but Goldsmith and Cervantes still deserve the place assigned them. He does not tell us what boat he was on at this time, but later in the year he was with Bixby again, on the Alonzo Child. 
we get a bit of the pilot in port in his next to orion clemens in keokuk iowa alonzo child new orleans september twenty eighth eighteen sixty dear brother i just received yours and molly's letter yesterday they had been here two weeks forwarded from st louis we got here yesterday we'll leave at noon to-day of course i've had no time in twenty-four hours to do anything therefore i'll answer after we are under way again yesterday i had many things to do but bixby and i got with the pilots of two other boats and went off dissipating on a ten-dollar dinner at a french restaurant breathe it not unto maul where we ate sheephead fish with mushrooms shrimps and oysters birds coffee with brandy burnt in it etc etc ate drank and smoked from two p m until five o'clock and then then the day was too far gone to do anything please find enclosed and acknowledge receipt of twenty dollars in haste sam l clemens it should be said perhaps that when he became pilot jane clemens had released her son from his pledge in the matter of cards and liquor this license did not upset him however he cared very little for either of these dissipations his one great indulgence was tobacco a matter upon which he was presently to receive some grave counsel he reports it in his next letter a sufficiently interesting document the clairvoyant of this visit was madame caprell famous in her day clemens had been urged to consult her and one idle afternoon concluded to make the experiment the letter reporting the matter to his brother is fragmentary and is the last remaining to us of the piloting period fragment of a letter to orion clemens in keokuk iowa new orleans february sixth eighteen sixty two she's a very pleasant little lady rather pretty about twenty-eight say five feet two and one quarter would weigh one hundred sixteen has black eyes and hair is polite and intelligent used good language and talks much faster than i do she invited me into the little back parlor closed the door and we were alone we sat down facing each other then she asked my age then she put her hands before her eyes a moment and commenced talking as if she had a good deal to say and not much time to say it in something after this style yours is a watery planet you gain your livelihood on the water but you should have been a lawyer there is where your talents lie you might have distinguished yourself as an orator or as an editor you have written a great deal you write well but you are rather out of practice no matter you will be in practice some day you have a superb constitution and as excellent health as any man in the world you have great powers of endurance in your profession your strength holds out against the longest sieges without flagging still the upper part of your lungs the top of them is slightly affected 
you must take care of yourself. You do not drink, but you use entirely too much tobacco, and you must stop it. Mind, not moderate, but stop the use of it totally. Then I can almost promise you eighty-six, when you will surely die. Otherwise, look out for twenty-eight, thirty-one, thirty-four, forty-seven, and sixty-five. Be careful, for you are not of a long-lived race that is on your father's side. You are the only healthy member of your family, and the only one in it who has anything like the certainty of attaining to a great age. So stop using tobacco, and be careful of yourself. In some respects you take after your father, but you are much more like your mother, who belongs to the long-lived, energetic side of the house. You never brought all your energies to bear upon any subject but what you accomplished it. For instance, you are self-made, self-educated. Which proves nothing. Don't interrupt. When you sought your present occupation, you found a thousand obstacles in the way, obstacles unknown, not even suspected by any save you and me, since you keep such matters to yourself. But you fought your way, and hid the long struggle under a mask of cheerfulness which saved your friend's anxiety on your account. To do all this requires all the qualities I have named. You flatter well, madam. Don't interrupt. Up to within a short time, you had always lived from hand to mouth. Now you are in easy circumstances, for which you need give credit to no one but yourself. The turning point in your life occurred in 1840, 7, 8, which was a death, perhaps and this threw you upon the world and made you what you are. It was always intended that you should make yourself. Therefore, it was well that this calamity occurred as early as it did. You will never die of water, although your career upon it in the future seems well sprinkled with misfortune. You will continue upon the water for some time yet. You will not retire, finally, until ten years from now. What is your brother's age? Thirty-five, and a lawyer, and in pursuit of an office? Well, he stands a better chance than the other two, and he may get it. He is too visionary, is always flying off on a new hobby. This will never do. Tell him I said so. He is a good lawyer, a very good lawyer, and a fine speaker, is very popular and much respected, and makes many friends, but although he retains their friendship, he loses their confidence by displaying his instability of character. The land he has now will be very valuable after a while. Say, uh, fifty years hence, or thereabouts, madam? No, less time, but never mind the land. That is a secondary consideration. Let him drop that for the present, and devote himself to his business and politics with all his might, for he must hold offices under the government. After a while you will possess a good deal of property, retire at the end of ten years, after which your pursuits will be literary, 
try the law. You will certainly succeed. I am done now. If you have any questions to ask, ask them freely, and if it be in my power, I will answer without reserve, without reserve. I asked a few questions of minor importance, paid her two dollars, and left, under the decided impression that going to the fortune-tellers was just as good as going to the opera, and the cost scarcely a trifle more. Ergo, I will disguise myself and go again one of these days, when other amusements fail. Now isn't she the devil? That is to say, isn't she a right smart little woman? When you want money, let Ma know, and she will send it. She and Pamela are always fussing about change, so I sent them a hundred and twenty quarters yesterday. Fiddler's change enough to last till I get back, I reckon. Sam It is not so difficult to credit Madame Caprell with clairvoyant powers when one has read the letters of Samuel Clemens up to this point. If we may judge by those that have survived, her prophecy of literary distinction for him was hardly warranted by anything she could have known of his past performance. These letters of his youth have a value today only because they were written by the man who later was to become Mark Twain. The squibs and skits which he sometimes contributed to the New Orleans papers were bright, perhaps, and pleasing to his pilot associates, but they were without literary value. He was twenty-five years old. More than one author has achieved reputation at that age. Mark Twain was of slower growth. At that age he had not even developed a definite literary ambition. Whatever the basis of Madame Caprell's prophecy, we must admit that she was a good guesser on several matters, a right smart little woman, as Clemens himself phrased it. She overlooked one item, however, the proximity of the Civil War. Perhaps it was too close at hand for second sight. A little more than two months after the Caprell letter was written, Fort Sumter was fired upon. Mark Twain had made his last trip as a pilot up the river to St. Louis. The nation was plunged into a four years' conflict. There are no letters of this immediate period. Young Clemens went to Hannibal, and enlisting in a private company, composed mainly of old schoolmates, went soldiering for two rainy and glorious weeks, by the end of which he had had enough of war, and furthermore had discovered that he was more of a Union abolitionist than a slave-holding secessionist, as he had at first supposed. Convictions were likely to be rather infirm during those early days of the war, and subject to change without notice. Especially was this so in a border state. End of section 2 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista